we are uh, continuing on in our study in 1 Corinthians, and we have turned a corner because up until this point, we've been working the last several weeks on chapter 15, and we are now, we've worked our way all the way through 15th, 16th of First Corinthians, and we begin tonight with uh, the beginning of chapter 16. And, and we've been looking at this powerful truth of the resurrection the last few weeks. And, and today begin, we kind of transition into talking about the final things, the final things that uh, in particular that Paul wants to say to this Corinthian church before he closes out his letter. And, and we've entitled the mini-series that we're going to look at the next several weeks on chapter 16, the church is a loving family, and tonight my hope is we're going to see how we're a loving family through giving. The church is a loving family through giving, and here's where we're headed tonight. This is kind of uh, the spoiler section of, of for the sermon. This is where we're headed. Three big points I want us to take away from the passage we're going to look at. First, we'll see that even though we are meant to live life with the local church, with the local body of Christ, kind of at our center, we're also called to remember that we are part of something much, much bigger. We're part of a global, universal church. Secondly, part of making much of Christ is loving others within that global church through our actions and through our financial resources. But this inherently means that we should already be giving regularly to the ongoing mission and ministry of our church. And thirdly, Paul demonstrates a great measure of integrity, as we're going to see, related to finances as he communicates about this offering that we're going to read about. We're going to unpack how this should be a priority of, of all, all of every member of the church to, to know what's going on with our finances and to, to help us as we seek to continually be transparent and to do things with with integrity. So finally, the takeaway from all of that is going to be that uh, as we tie these things together, we're going to have an opportunity to demonstrate in yet another way how we can live out the great command of Jesus, because that's what we want to do. We want to make much of who Christ is and, and love others as we do that. So before we actually read our passage, though, uh, let me give you two big truths, two big truths to kind of uh, their shadow kind of looms over like two large mountain peaks over this this passage tonight. And, uh, and, and one of these is that the story of the Bible from cover to cover is that God has always been about redeeming a people for himself from every language, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity from all over the globe. God has always been about that. You see that from cover to cover, starting in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15 when Adam and Eve fall and God, they have this confrontation conversation with God and, and he gives this promise in the midst of what seems like a hopeless situation that it won't always be this way. He gives this glimpse of, of, of a gospel promise right there in chapter 3 verse 15 and then you blatantly see it just several chapters over in Genesis, Genesis Genesis 22, where God makes this covenant with Abraham, and he tells Abraham, as he's given this covenant, in 22.18, he says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. So not just you and your family will be blessed, not just your kinsmen will be blessed, but all nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. We see throughout Scripture how Jesus fulfills that, and he's the one that, that kind of brings that to fruition. And that same promise is really reiterated time and time again to Isaac and to, to, to King David and others throughout Scripture. And you see it finally in Jesus, the culmination of, of him, the final words to his disciples in Matthew 28. It, he says to, to his disciples to go and make disciples 
of all nations. And literally the Greek is pantata ethne, the ta ethne, the nations, the ethnicities of the world, every language group. And uh, the scriptures end with John's revelation as you finally see this picture described in eternity future. And in Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the, land, the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God has always been about this. It's not plan B. It's always been plan A for him to be about redeeming a people for himself. Uh, One people, one loving family, and one big loving family in Christ. And we're going to see how this affects our passage in just a moment. But that's, that's the first one. The second one is this. Every bit of the way we're called to live out the Christian life, every, every bit of the way, every bit of the instruction we're given in God's word on how to be that loving family can be boiled down to the great commands that Jesus gives us in Matthew 22 as he quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, there the gospel writer describes it, the encounter this way and from Matthew 22, 35 to 40. He says, And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him, Jesus, And this expert says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Our whole lives are to be about this pursuit, making much of God. And then loving people and making much of people in a way that honors our process of making much of God. Um, that's that's our what our whole life is to be about. And, and as we, we're about to see, we, we can't just dip into 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4 without having this understanding of the bigger picture that's at play. Because if we don't take time to kind of think through those big two big truths, the temptation would be for us to view this passage as... Let me just skip through this to get to the good bit at the end. Uh, like, like we're tempted to do with some of the genealogies in the name, the list of names in Scripture. It's just kind of a section we bypass. Uh, but we don't need to do that. This is an important part of Scripture for us. Uh, we know that every part of Scripture is important. But this is not just a throwaway kind of section. So with those two truths in mind, let us now uh, look at our passage tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1-4. to 4. It'll be on the screen. If you have your copy, read along with me. It says, Now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it's suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. If you remember back to the last several weeks as we've talked about the resurrection and, and the power that it was uh, and that all that secured for us as followers of Jesus, uh, it's kind of funny to me to think about where we've come from and where we are. You now, Paul moves from, almost in a whiplash kind of fashion, moves from battle cries of, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? And, and to commands like, therefore, brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, uh, always excelling in the work of the Lord, to now turning this corner, now concerning the collection. 
It's just a really hard transition. But there's obviously some final things that Paul wants to get to before he gives the final see you later in the letter here. And what we know from examining this, this whole entire letter, and 2 Corinthians as well, is that this church had actually written a letter to Paul asking him some things. And now he's responding just to a few of those things. As we've seen throughout this letter, this is yet one of those things. They've written to him and asked him about this offering, about this collection to the church at Jerusalem. And that's why he says, now concerning the collection. They know what he's talking about. He's, he's referring to something that, that they're both familiar with. Um, so as you read through the, the book of, of Acts... What you gather is that you see a scenario of hardship that really kind of plays out in the background, almost kind of off screen. We hear about it at different points, that it's kind of, it's kind of playing out through the Roman world, all the churches in the Roman world. And in Acts 11, verse 28, the Acts is, is talking about the church at Antioch, and, and it describes one of their worship gatherings. And it says that a, a guy named Agabus, he stands up in the middle of their worship gathering in the church of Antioch, and he predicts by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. That's what Acts eleven twenty-eight says. And that passage goes on to indicate that, that, that things would be especially difficult for the church in Judea, the church in Jerusalem in particular. So in response, the church in Antioch took a collection for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And now we fast forward almost a decade later, 10 to 13 years later, and Paul is here. He's writing this letter about, the, about a collection to the church of Jerusalem. And so what we can gather is this is probably not the same instance. This is probably they're still in need. Yet, 10 years later, here's yet another collection, another offering to go and help support them, to support their basic needs, to support the ministry that's going on there. Uh, But this time, it's a little different because Paul has now touched base with all these Gentile churches, the churches across the region of Galatia, and this church in in Corinth, in Achaia. And and, and he's hoping that they're going to help with the relief efforts that are going on in Jerusalem. And this provided an important moment for Paul's investment in this church. And it's a great opportunity for us this evening as we think about the implications of this passage. We see here that a group of almost entirely Gentile congregations, Gentile churches, are leading the charge to help a church that's almost entirely Jewish which doesn't make sense in a Roman world kind of context. Those two groups don't just mesh together. They're very different. They would, they would have stayed apart normally. Uh, the, the Jewish group would have seen the Gentiles as being unclean. The Gentiles would have had animosity about that. So this is not a normal thing. It would not have played out this, this way in normal life. Yet, you see this radical love on display that all these Gentile churches are going to actually support the work of strangers. And not just strangers, strangers that they should be at odds with. So remember what we said here. Uh, this is, I mean, this is amazing unity on display. That what we said is that, one, God has always been about redeeming a people for himself from every nation. Not a group of peoples, but a people, one people. And secondly, we said that our whole aim is to make much of God, to love others, and out of that overflow uh, of loving God. This then is an opportunity to remind this church in Corinth that they are part of something bigger. They are part of a global, universal 
church. Let's be clear today. Scripture commands that we are to orient our lives in such a way that the local church is, is the hub of life, is the center of life. It's, it's how we do life through. It's the lens through which we view everything else in our life. Uh, the local church is. We live out our faith in the context of local church community. We live out the great commission of making disciples of all nations in this context. But we cannot forget the grand narrative on display here that we are part of something bigger. We're part of something much bigger. As a, as a kid, I remember grappling with the fact that uh, other people have experiences um, even when they left my presence. That my friends, when going home from school, primary school, they actually went on, and, and life didn't just end for them or take a pause, but they actually had conversations and experiences. And, and in my brain, that, I didn't understand why that was, because in my, my little narcissistic brain, I am the main one in life, you know, and I am, I am the main actor in this narrative. So was that real? I mean, how, how can I know that's real? I didn't experience that. I didn't know that. I, don't, I didn't see that firsthand. It was mind-boggling that life actually happened outside of me and my family. Even more mind-boggling was the fact that there are people and places in the world whom I will never meet who are having experiences, and they're living life, and they're having celebrations of holiday, and they're sitting around dinner tables having conversations that I will never be privy to. That was just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around that. Uh, and I remember trying, struggling with that, that the actual world doesn't revolve around me. And, and, and uh, I still go through seasons of that. I think we probably all do because that's the norm for our fallen human hearts is that we think all of life revolves around us. We are the main actor in our story. But that's not true. Christ is actually the main actor in the story. He's the one who's been orchestrating all things to redeem a people for himself. We play one small part of that. Uh, Through today's passage, my goal is to point out that one way Scripture calls us to combat this kind of narcissistic way of thinking in a way that makes much of Christ. And, And that's through remembering that we are part of something much bigger. Praise God we are. We're part of a global body of Christ a universal church. I use that phrase, universal church, which is, is a phrase that's, uh, that's, that's used by one of my favorite theologians named Wayne Grudem. And, and Grudem says that we, what we mean by that is all Christians in all places over the course of all history, that one universal church. And in our smaller corner of the world, we tend to use the word church to mean one local, just this one local church. But Scripture uses it in a few different uses the word church in a few different ways and and certainly it talks about the local church but it also talks about um, the church in terms of a much larger body a global body for example in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 25 Paul writes husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her love your wives just as Christ loved the church one, singular, and gave himself for her. So we know as we read this, Paul isn't saying that Jesus loved just one local church and that's it. Sorry, all you other churches out there, 
You're just kind of on your own. No, that's not what he's saying. And he's also not saying that, that Jesus over and over again is going to come to earth and die for this local church and this local church and this local. And that's not what he's talking about. We know that Paul is speaking about a larger body of Christ. He's writing about how Jesus gave himself up for every believer from all over the world, from all of time, and, and all who make up one single universal church. But there are clear instances, and Scripture talks about individual local churches. So you have kind of two, two at play. I'll give you one quick example from, from Romans 16. Uh, Romans 16.5, Paul is writing and, and closing out another letter to the church at Rome, and he's, he's giving his final farewells. And, and he says, uh, verse 5, Greet also the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's home. Greet that church. Give them my love. Um, and he does the same thing at the end of this letter. So it's important we see this reality of a larger, larger global church, even if we spend 99% of our time in our preaching, in our teaching, in our communication, talking about this local church. Uh, we can't forget that this one local church is a part of something much bigger. We're part of a global church. And that's what's happening. That's what Paul is leaning into as he writes our passage in, in, in chapter 16 here. Verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul says. He says, now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. Okay, he's saying, now you Corinthians, about the collection, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches on the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something and save in keeping with how he's prospering so that no collection will be made, need to be made when I come to you. So he's saying you uh, do this, take up the offering, you just like the Galatian churches did, but also don't forget that this collection was, a, was for the Jerusalem church. So in our passage, we see Paul write to this particular local church in Corinth. He connects it to the Galatian churches, all for the sake of Jerusalem church. And all of these come together to form part of this larger, wider body of Christ. So before we kind of get into the practicalities of, of, of giving and taking collections, let's just pause and let this serve as an important reminder for us tonight. It helps us to remember that we're not alone. It, it is vital that we remember that. Even though we won't see most of these members of this larger body of Christ this side of eternity, it's important for us to realize that we are part of something much, much bigger than just Dentist and Baptist Church. Now you think about this. How helpful is it to remember that there are men and women around the world who are struggling and, and standing firm in their faith, who are persevering just like you and I strive to do. That's encouraging. We're not alone in this fight. Christ has worked to redeem a people from every nation and every tribe. We should work to identify with these redeemed people where we have opportunity. And that helps us to have an eternal perspective. It's so easy for us to think that this temporary life that we live right now is it, that it's the main thing. When actually, when we read the Bible, it talks about eternity ahead is really the main thing, where we will be with God forever. This is actually just the beginnings, of, the foretaste of that main thing that we're going to experience. Uh, Dina and I have a former colleague who, who wrote a book called The Insanity of God, and they've gone on and made it turned it into a documentary. And the author, Nick Ripkin, spent time traveling and speaking with church, uh, church leaders around the world, specifically who were in places where the church was heavily persecuted. 
and like severe persecution. And I, I just remember being so overwhelmed as I, as I watched that, as I read the book and then watched this. Uh, but he spoke with one leader and interviewed this one leader who, who made a statement that there's no separate persecuted church and, no, and non-persecuted church. Because that's the way we in the West like to think of things. Oh, oh the persecuted church. We're part of the non-persecuted. He, he says, no, there's no, no separate persecuted church and non-persecuted church. There's, there's no distinction between these two. There's just one church. While believers in his part of the world suffer severe persecution, they do so for our sake and on behalf of us. Just like we suffer less persecution and live in, in seeming peace on behalf of them. So that we can say, our brothers and sisters, we identify with them, we, we recognize, we see their plight and we pray for them. We want to help them because they're doing that as representative of Christ on our behalf. And the same goes for us. The flip side is true. We're meant to identify with members of the body who are struggling. We know that. That's not anything new. This serves them. It helps us, but it also helps us to have an eternal perspective so that we're not always fighting that anchor that's pulling us towards having a temporal priority and temporal mindset. Having an eternal perspective helps us to see those around the world as we should with a deep sense of love of Christ. And in one sense, it creates a deeper sense of urgency as we think about the people who live around us. So that's the first thing we see in this passage. Secondly, our second big point is we see here that Paul is instructing the Corinthians to give toward the needs of the Jerusalem church. And that just affirms the truth that we all know that it is is good, it is biblical to be concerned with the needs of others in the world. We know that. We want to be concerned with the needs of others who are in the world. We want to, want to help them. It is good to spend our resources on helping others and supporting their needs. And Paul instructs the Corinthians to make this a normal practice. And to be clear, the collection he mentions, he's not even refer, referring to the normal giving of the church. It's something else entirely. It's, a, it's its own separate thing. It's a different collection than what would have gone to help cover the cost of local ministry in the life of the church. And there are a few things I want to say about this, but we have to start with something I think Paul points out in our passage. Look at verse 2 one more time. He says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he's prospering so that no collection will need to be made when I come. As a church, to do this well, it comes back to having the right heart. Paul writes that this Corinthian church should give according to how they are prospering. That's the key phrase there, um, how they are prospering. Everyone's situation is different according to how you are living and how you, how your situ, what your situation is. One source I read this week reminded his readers to consider who it is and who is sovereign over our prosperity It's the Lord who gives us what we need and what we have. Nothing is truly our own because it originated from God, not from us. Everything any of us have, we have it because God gave it to us. We are simply stewards of the resources God has given us. Therefore, when we approach this subject of giving, we shouldn't be tempted to be closed-fisted with our resources. They are truly God's resources that He's given us charge over. I love a portion of scripture that captures the essence of this. In 1 Timothy 6, 
Paul writes Timothy and he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. The point here, I mean, he's writing about this, is to remind Timothy and and for Timothy to remind the, the church in Ephesus to be diligent to set our hope on God, not on wealth, not on financial and material resources. We are in the West are so bent towards self-sufficiency. I want to be self-sufficient. That's what we're taught as children. You know, raised up, be independent, be self-sufficient, work hard, do well, do well in school, get a good job, be self-sufficient. But what Paul is saying here is don't be self-sufficient, be God-reliant, and he will give you what you need. He will provide all that you need. We're, we're to be open-handed with what we have and honor Christ in that way. He's given us all things to be generous, to share, to reflect the very same character of God that we see in Christ who left everything and gave everything for us. Therefore, if that's the perspective we have as we kind of approach this topic of giving, our hearts are far more, I don't know about you, my heart's far more inclined to have a, a really good conversation about giving if I approach it from that perspective. When I was first thinking about this passage and really kind of meditating on the passage and preparing it, um, one thing kept coming back to my heart as I kind of kept praying through it. If, if this is directly referencing a collection to be taken for another church in another part of the world that this Corinthian church has never met and will never meet, man, that is such a picture of John thirteen thirty five that I've never even thought about before. And this is, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. I, don't, I think I don't, I didn't put that up. I'm sorry, Jeremy. In John 13, 35, it's really short. Jesus, in his, in his conversation with his disciples, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. I was like, man, how, what a great picture. We, we often think of that playing out in the normal course of a week in the local church where you know, people can watch our lives and they see how we interact with each other, how we invest in each other, how we support one another. But this is a totally different way to, to go about this and fulfill this because this says I can actually give to people I will never meet out of my love for them and want to help support them because we are the same in Christ Therefore, I freely give to help support their needs. I, I mean, can you imagine the Jerusalem church kind of sharing about their testimony in this? And, and, and the members of the church saying, yeah, these Gentiles, Gentile churches gave all this money to, to help. It was the craziest thing. They just gave money to help us, to like support us and help us to do the ministry of the church. And, and, and Gentile, yeah, gen, Gentiles actually from Galatia and from Corinth. How do you know that? We don't know them. And that's the crazy thing. You know, what a picture of love that is. That is amazing. Sometimes the best way to make much of Christ and to honor him is to love others within the global church through our actions and through our financial resources, to give financially to their ministries or to their need. So at this point, the act of giving becomes more than just giving money to the poor. Not that that's a bad thing, certainly not. But this kind of giving actually helps us to identify with them, to stand with them in solidarity where they are. I love that. But here's here's the thing, though. This kind of giving that we just read about, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, it assumes that we're already contributing financially to the life and ministry of the church. Remember, we said that this collection 
It's not talking about regular giving back in verse 1. Sorry, Jeremy. You can just leave that up there because I'm going to keep going back to 1 and 2. So it's not talking about regular giving. It's talking about a special collection. It's talking about take it on the first day of the week. You know, set aside something as you're able to do. So he's referencing something that's special, which means ordinary, regular giving of our finances is, is, is a given there. It's assumed there. It's, it's thought to be, I don't even have to talk about that. This is something extra beyond that. Um, the first day of the week, do this. So if, if giving to a special collection on a regular weekly basis to be, is to be their norm, it tells us that regular giving is a given. So if Deniston Baptist is your local church, it should be normal practice for us to be contributing to the finances of the church through our, our resource, our financial resources. Giving back of what the Lord has given us is a healthy thing. It continually reiterates to the Lord and to my own heart that, you know what? I'm not the, the Lord of everything. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm actually dependent upon you. You've given me everything. It, it, it reiterates to my own heart as an act of worship that everything I have is actually from you. And so to be clear tonight, I'm not advocating for uh, a legalistic approach to, to giving, but actually what we're talking about is just the beginning of a, a larger conversation. How do we be generous? How do we be a generous people? How do we practice generosity? And this is kind of our door to enter this conversation, finances. But it also extends, as we were talking about this afternoon, it also extends to how hospitable we are with our homes, with our families, with our lives, with our time and our energy and our talents. This is one aspect of that. This is in our passage, so we're going to talk about this particular facet tonight. But that's what this is. It's an act of worship. And acts of worship... They cost us something. You see that in Scripture. They, acts of worship, they cost things. So depending on who you are tonight in the room, it might be, and what your situation is, it might be that uh, it's an act of worship. It costs you something to sing out loud in a room like this full of people. For some of us, that's not as much of a, of a cost because we feel like, you know what, it's not a big deal for me. But some of us, that's a really big deal, and it costs me something to sing out loud in a, in a crowded room. For others of us, the idea of sitting down and having a conversation that's a gospel conversation where I lay out what the gospel is and then offer that person sitting across the table to follow Jesus, that costs me something. For others of us, the idea of contributing from my financial resources is a costly thing. But the thing is, we don't avoid any three of these scenarios. It's the fact that it costs us something, that it reminds our hearts that worship is about Christ, not about me. I'm to engage in worship even because it costs me something. Because it costs me something. And one of the clearest ways to show approval or buy-in or ownership over anything is to invest financially. So is this your local church? Then you and I should definitely be giving to the financial, to the finances and the life of the ministry of the church as an act of worship, to stand in solidarity with the rest of our church family, to say, man, we are in this together as family. That's, that's how much we love our local church. And I know, trust me, man, I know that our culture has warped this concept. I mean, it, we, there is a stigma about talking about this concept. There have been so many people throughout history, especially recent history, who have misused and abused this concept. 
But because that's happened, that doesn't mean we stop talking about this. It actually exposes the need to talk about this in a healthy way. What does healthy giving, biblical giving look like? I mean, there are an abundance of moments throughout the New Testament where you see the church give sacrificially for the sake of the mission of the church. And one of the most common examples is, is found in Acts chapter 2, where the church is beginning to explode right after Pentecost, and, and all these crazy things are happening. And at, right at the end of chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, you see the whole church contributing in a sacrificial way to the point that they say, everything is common. How, what do you need? You can have it. I, I have this property. I'm going to go sell it, and I'm going to give you... The, the, what you need, and they begin to all put everything on the on the table for the sake of making much of God and making much of of of, of God amongst their neighbors, so that other people will hear the gospel. That's that's a pretty cool act of worship to me. Um, not not saying you need to go sell everything you have to give to the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's an act of worship. More than anything else, finances are a reflection of our heart. And Jesus indicated this in Matthew 6 as he's teaching on possessions and materials, uh, wealth. He, he says this in Matthew 6, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The act of giving to the church is as much about you and your heart as it is the church. It's about us, my, the state of my heart. How do I, how do, I do this? Let go and, and, and show God, demonstrate that, you know what? I'm going to be open-handed as an act of worship. As much as it is to say, here, what does the church need? How do I, how do I give regularly to the church? Uh, it's a means by which we can demonstrate that Christ is the Lord of my heart, not wealth or finances. And to be honest, it's like verse 2 tells us here. We give each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he's prospering. We recognize that not all of us are in the same situations, but the idea is to be generous. And what does generous mean for each of us? Because it does vary from person to person. But here's one thing I'll ask before I move on to our, our final point tonight. We need to honor that phrase according to how each of us is prospering, but we don't need to let that phrase be an excuse for us not to give because that's not what the, the passage is saying. Uh, I, I love that Old Testament principle of the tithe simply because of how it originated, not the whole legalist, legalistic system of giving 10%, which actually could have been up to like 24%, but actually that the concept of first fruits. In an, in an agrarian society where, where people gave from the very beginning of their harvest, they gave of their first fruits, the best they had, to the Lord as an act of worship. And the thing I love about that is the faith it demonstrated to do that. Because as someone from a farming background, my family has a farming background, you aren't guaranteed to con- have a continual perpetual harvest. So they're saying, God, I give you the first fruits on faith as an act of worship, to say, I trust what you say, that you're going to provide for my needs, so I trust that, and I believe that. I'm going to give you this as an act of worship, trusting you're going to continue to provide for me. And that's what we're, we're talking about tonight. How do, we, how do we be generous in a way that trusts the Lord to provide for what we need as an act of worship? Uh, finally, moving on to our last point this evening. Uh, 
And it's, it's kind of related to what we saw. Look at verses 2 to 4. I know we've read 2 like eight times. We're going to read it one more time, all right? On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something and save in keeping with how he's prospering so that no collections will be need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it's suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. Paul says to, uh, to take this collection on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the, when the church gathers, you know, the early church was already meeting. They'd moved from Saturday to Sunday because Jesus had risen on Sunday. So they begin meeting, gathering together on Sunday. And he says to make sure that it's all done by the time he arrives. Then he says that he's going to send it with anyone the church decides to be their representative. I deeply appreciate how much integrity Paul has in this matter. I mean, it's just on display for us to see. Uh, and, and, and granted, I... You kind of laughed at me this morning when I when I said this, but this isn't the flashiest or, or the most trendy sermon there is out there. This is not like ten steps to make this part of your life better. This is this is kind of like super mundane but super essential stuff that we need to talk about tonight. Paul goes out of his way to avoid having any hint of impropriety here. I mean, he he says, I want you to take up the offering, because this is your offering, not my offering. You take up the collection. You handle it. In fact, have it done before I even get to there on my visit. And then you decide who's going to deliver it to Jerusalem. I'll go with them, but it's it's only, only if you think it's suitable. You, you take care of, of all of that. Make sure it's all taken care of. Why do you think he does that? Well, for one thing, He's coming to visit them in person to teach them about spiritual matters. And the last thing he wants to do is to confuse any of that and to conflate that with giving. So let's focus on the main thing, which is probably the correction that he needed to give this church. But the spiritual things, the discipleship that needed to happen. And the last thing, I mean, I I think probably this is even more important. The last thing he wanted to do was to provide any kind of atmosphere where there's undue pressure on giving. Because he's Paul, he's the guy, I mean, and he, if there's a celebrity in the world at that time, it's him. So just his presence alone could have put undue pressure on people to give in an unhealthy way. And so doesn't want to have any manipulation, doesn't want to have any undue pressure. He reminds them that they're to give according to how the Lord has blessed them. But he also wants this settled before he arrives so they don't, they don't feel manipulated in any way by his presence or to, to do so out of obligation. But look at the barriers he puts in place between him and this offering. He has them collected before he's set to arrive. He arranges for the church to set up representatives. And then he says, I'll go with them, but not necessarily, only if it's suitable for me to go with you. I don't necessarily need to go. I love how much he operates from this place of transparency. There's nothing hidden. There's no hint of impropriety. He's, he's protected from any kind of accusation. And I love this because it reminds me of how hard our people and our finance team and our church work to be efficient and to be transparent. I, I love the folks who volunteer and work with our finance team. They continually work at making things efficient and clear for all of us. I love I love coming to our DBC Life meetings because I always walk away encouraged to see how clearly it's all articulated, our finances, and how, how we, I mean, we rejoice because we can clearly see, wow, we did what? We gave that much away to what? You know, we spent that much money on that? That's amazing. How we, it's clear to see how we invest. 
And, uh, and that's a joy. It should cause us to joy. And that's why we have a finance report at every single one of those DBC Life meetings. So if DBC is your church, then not only should you be giving towards the life and ministry of the church with financial resources, but it should be a priority to, for you to know where does, it, where does our money actually go? It should, it's on you to, to figure that out and to, to research, to come to these meetings and to hear how do we spend our resources and whether or not we're always working to do things with integrity and transparency. Because I can say that all day long up here, but if you're not coming along to our meetings and hearing those things for yourself, how will you know that we're operating with a, with a deep value of having transparency? It should matter to you how DBC uses the resources that the Lord has given us for his purposes how we engage others with the gospel. And it should matter who our Jerusalem churches are to you, to our church family. You should be at DBC Life meetings to hear the finance report and ask any questions. Um, When we work together to do this, to make much of Christ, man, we work to demonstrate not just generosity, but generosity carried out with integrity. And there's some difference in that. Doing church finances that way, man, it is worthy of Jesus. Because I mean, at the end of the day, we wrap all, the, all, all of these things up to say all of this is about making much of Christ, reflecting who he is. The whole point of giving, the whole point of talking about being a global church, all of this points back to who Christ is, the one who stepped out of heaven, who had everything from eternity past, in the perfect state, perfect harmony, perfect communion with the Trinity, yet steps into flesh, takes on flesh, leaves perfection and steps into a broken world, giving everything, his very life for us. How could we not want to reflect that tonight? That's, that's at the crux of it all. So as we close tonight, I have just a couple of things, uh, a couple of ref, ref, um, reflection questions for us to talk, for, to think through and ponder as we, as we respond tonight. One, does your life demonstrate obedience to these two commands through your sacrificial giving? The commands to love God with all that you are, to love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, remember that in Christ, you are part of a global church. In Christ, we are each part of this global body, this bigger body of Christ. So are you demonstrating love for them through prayer and through giving? And thirdly, are you being faithful to be informed on how DBC uses its resources? As members of the DBC family, man, we are all accountable. It's not just on the elders to be accountable for how we utilize our resources. We as a family are accountable to the Lord for how we use our resources. So may we be faithful to use them well and to pursue being effective in that way. So tonight, we just, we point to Christ and say, we do all of this because of who Christ is, uh, we want to make much of him because of, because of who he is and what he's done. And so I, we close with that tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that, that uh, you give us this privilege. You give us this opportunity. Thank you that we work through books of the Bible that naturally and organically put us in places like this where we can talk about these issues in the body of Christ, that giving and finances and our responsibility in that. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to worship you in this way. Help us to be faithful. Lord, I pray that you would make us a generous people, not just with our finances. Help us to be a generous people with our homes, with our time, with our energy, with our families, Lord. Help us to be about the task of making much of you. 
by loving others the way we love ourselves through the making of disciples. We love you, God. We, we want to honor you. Help us to be uh, effective in doing that in this life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.